Welcome to Guns and God, the podcast that brings faith and politics into conversation with particular interest in extremism. Uh, my name is Helen Painter. I'm director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence. And my co-host today is Matthew Feldman. Matthew, would you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm Professor Matthew Feldman, director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right. Our guest today is Liam Lybird, and I've asked him to introduce himself. I'm uh, Dr. Liam Lybird. I currently work at the University of Sheffield as a teaching associate in modern international history. I teach on um, empire, South Africa, sort of decolonization in the British context. And my work, my research rather, deals with, um, my work deals with the radical right in Britain and how they sort of fit into a broader history of uh, British ideas about race and about colonialism that are part of much nearer the mainstream than perhaps we usually think of the radical right as being. Thanks so much, Liam. It's great to have you with us. So we've brought Liam in as a historian and as a um, colonial theorist um, to think a little bit about the um, consequences and benefits of statue toppling. And we're going to begin um, with a little bit of a story um, from my own locality. Well, about three miles from where I'm sitting right now um, is the centre of Bristol. Um, and uh, therefore, as long as I can remember, obviously, um, since it was put up in ooh, 1895, um, it was, has been a statue of Edward Colston. Um, interesting question, actually, of how many people kind of looked at that and wondered what it was there for, how many people just kind of walked past it and ignored it. Um, there's all sorts of interesting questions around that. But um, uh, what I, I do know is that um, for a long while there has been a movement to try and get this statue taken down. A little bit of background about Colston, so born in 1636, um, died in 1721, um, and he was involved in, the, he, was a, he was a merchant uh, living in Bristol, he was also an MP. Um, and uh, he was involved in the in that that triangular passage that uh, that we know so much about. Um, probably involved in the transportation of about eighty four thousand slaves, um, and an estimated nineteen thousand of them would have died. Um, he was also the manager of the Royal Africa Company for um, for ten years, so he was deeply implicated in the slave trade. Um, now, the interesting thing about this statue is that it was erected not during his lifetime, but it was actually put up um, 170 years after he died. Um, and uh, the placard that was put up around that time says that it was erected by the citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. Um, so there's, there was this kind of this myth, if we use it in the technical sense, of, of Edward Colston of him being a great benefactor of the city. Um, the, the school that my girls went to um, is, uh, well, I might as well name it because it's kind of public domain stuff, really, but it's called St Mary Redcliffe and Temple School. And my understanding is that the temple half of it, because it was two schools that fused, I think it was one, one half of it, um, was, was founded with money from Edward Colston, as many, many other institutions in, in Bristol have been. And um, when earlier, now they've stopped doing this uh, some years ago, but certainly when my eldest daughter was, was at the school, they used to once a year go to the local church, St Mary Redcliffe um, Parish Church, for um, Edward Colston Day and they'd had a service and traditionally I'm not quite sure what it looked like in recent years except that they used to come home with a bun 
about that size and if it was just on video it's about a foot across um, but it's it certainly back historically that was a time when the apprentices used to um used to all go to the church and there was this kind of big service and they they lay garlands on his memorial um and they'd given a shilling to take away with them and so on so there was this kind of myth of colston as being this great benefactor of the city Actually, if you dig a little bit more, that the erection of the statue was, um, wasn't done. They tried to do it by public subscription. It was 1895. It was the height of, of you know, Victorian England. And um, they thought that they could easily raise a public subscription to do this. And actually, it was basically one man was kind of pushing this. And they, had, they couldn't raise the money. And essentially, in the end, uh, an anonymous benefactor came forward to make the donation. And everybody thinks it was this bloke who was pushing this particular agenda. But this kind of, as I say, this myth arose long after his death of him being a great benefactor despite the fact that they were really apart from the apart from the slave trade which is obviously the central issue that we're thinking of but in terms of the the instructions he put around who could receive um, his charity and who couldn't it was to do with your adherence to his particular branch of, of the Christian faith there was this kind of um, myth arose around almost some miraculous stories around him but he, bizarre uh, things and they kind of tried to whitewash away the slavery by saying he'd had this Damascus Road experience um, and his philanthropy all came out of a sense of you know atoning for his former wrongs all of this um, really without any historical foundation as, as far as I can tell so that's kind of the background and then I guess probably everybody um, watching or listening will, will know that um, a fort just under a fortnight ago as we record this um, big black lives matter protest in bristol and the statue was pulled down and as far as we can tell at this point anyway it feels like a pretty organic thing it feels like it kind of emerged clearly people had brought ropes with them but um it feels like it kind of emerged in in the moment really and they they lassoed this statue having tried i'm not sure i've said this to um for years to get the, the council either to take it down or to reframe it with a different um, legend attached to it. And we might talk a bit about that because there was some interesting stuff going on there as well. But they'd never succeeded in getting that changed. So finally, took mass into their own hand, pulled the statue, statue down. In a moment that I think looks very iconically like a lynching, actually. Um, with the kind of the ropes around this neck as it was kind of hanging there as it was falling and then they rolled it into the dock which of course itself was a deeply symbolic action given that the Bristol docks were one of the places in that triangular trade and in fact they rolled it right beside a bridge called uh, what's it called Perrow Bridge and Perrow was a slave um, who was brought to Bristol and never achieved his freedom um, and this bridge was named after him in 1999 so there's a lot of deeply symbolic stuff happening some of it perhaps almost unintentional but very interesting actions. I mean, I, I think um, right to me has, is, is there's two senses of that word, I suppose, is right in terms of strategy and then there's right in terms of a sort of morals and values, right? Um, and I'd say personally, I don't, I've not got a moral problem with taking statues down. Um, but my, and my concern is strategic in terms of, as an anti-racist strategy, how successful is it? And something that Helen uh, mentioned, um, is that you know people walk past that Colston statue without necessarily knowing for a long time who Colston was. I mean, one of my hobbies is to go to new cities. When I go to new cities, sorry, is to look for out of the way neglected monuments to colonial conflicts that are no longer um, that are no longer sort of fashionable. And there's a they're usually next to First World War memorials, actually, um, which is interesting. Um, the one, there's one in Sheffield, for instance. There's a, a big 
First World War Memorial to the Yorkshire and Lancashire Regiment in Western Park. Um, and it's got a sort of huge like obelisk thing with the Greek goddess Nike on top. And then next to it, just to the side, is a sort of brass plate that um, commemorates uh, the same regiment actions in the Sudan and in uh, the Boer War in the late sort of uh, 19th century, early 20th century. And it's interesting the way that most people probably walk past that have no idea about it, even though those conflicts are in some cases less than tw two decades apart. There's an, uh, another one that's very close to um, the ticket office at Edinburgh Castle, which is to the Highland regiments that put down the Indian Mutiny in 1857. Again, it's so mossy that you can't actually, you had to get right close to it to read it. And I just happened to sort of see the word mutiny in because like, I don't know, you know, you, when you're used to looking for things, you see them, don't you? Um, but most people walk straight past that to go to the to Edinburgh Castle. And it's, I just, I wonder if by taking these statues down, um, while I've no problem with taking them down, if, we, if people don't know who the person is in the first place, how much of a victory is that? Uh, apart from for the people who already agree with it, if you see what I mean. How much does it only speak to the converted? And I mean, I, the road statues been taken down a few days ago, or they've agreed to take it down and launch an inquiry or your college. And I wonder, um, too, whether, you know, most people don't know who Cecil Rhodes is, they don't know about his role in sort of establishing white minority rule in Southern Africa. Um, they don't know about his role in the, uh, sort of instigating the Boer War and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's um, and I'm not sure how much will, we're served by just taking that. I mean, what, what I'm concerned about is this shouldn't just be a gesture that we sort of do this sort of performative thing that's done and then we uh, and then we move on without really having improved public understanding about colonialism or mm. learned the lessons, I think, that the history and legacy of colonialism can teach us and that enable us to sort of move towards something genuinely anti-racist or as Matthew was saying, to sort of put him up in a positive sense, a genuine multiculturalism. Um, I know, just to say, it was also about um, the, 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 the initial campaign, well, I say the initial campaign, not the one at the University of Johannesburg, the one at Oxford, was not only about the statute, it was also about diversity among the staff and also in the sort of, in the syllabi in terms of what was being taught at Oxford. Um, very briefly, I think Liam is, is, is focused on the exact right thing in terms of what is this about and then what is the strategy to achieve that. And I'll give you an example. Um, it's very, I don't think anybody's going to mourn uh, the, the statue of Edward Colston, who, you know, in the 17th and 18th century was, was part of the grubby aspects of, of colonialism. It's all grubby, but in the, by the end of the 19th century, it was a little bit easier for people like Joseph Chamberlain to t say this was a civilizing mission, to say that we brought culture and all of these kinds of things. There was no pretense of that in the early, you know, edge of the sword conquest um, that we saw in Britain and elsewhere. And I think that that, you know, the attempted whitewashing by the Victorians um, very clearly at the end of the 19th century is a different context. But to return, if I, to very briefly to, to Liam's point is, is what are we trying to achieve? If what we're trying to achieve, and I'm just gonna take one example, I certainly don't wanna say it's the only thing, is to highlight how awful how truly um, inhumane slavery was. And I know that's not the only thing that we're doing. Taking down the statue raises the issue, and it certainly polarizes the issue. But uh, a report only released in April of 2020 by the Office of National Statistics found that there were between 10 and 136,000 human slaves in Britain this year. There was more than 5,000 reports, 
And this seems to me something where, you know, once we get on past, let's say, Colston or even Rhodes, Yan Smuts, Palmer Harris, Churchill, all of these people are very, very complicated and probably racist in a lot of cases as well, but complicated. You know, somebody like Churchill might have been an awful racist, but at the same time, he fought against a genocidal racist and probably wasn't genocidal even during the Bengal famine himself. And so it seems to me the question becomes, what are we aiming at? And if we're aiming at trying to get people on board for real practical policy shifts, to me, this would be the conversation really worth having about how do we turn around and make human slavery in the UK similar to pedophilia. Anybody even catches a whiff of it, you go straight to the police and they come down on you like, um, you know, like a bag of hammers. And I would really like to see some, uh, as Liam said, strategy in terms of where this is going to, because it will peter out once you get two different sides arguing about whether Churchill was an evil or a great man. I mean, I think the, the intention with all this was, was sort of propaganda by the deed, right? The deed being the statue coming down, the, the propaganda, I suppose, being that now everyone's talking about Edward Colston in a way that they weren't before. But I suppose the danger is, as you, as you sort of outlined, is that the, the focus com- becomes on the deed and not on the propaganda part, you see what I mean? Sometimes people say that we shouldn't judge historical characters by the present. And, and I suppose that begs the question of whether... Um, Christian ethics um, have changed. It's the sort of thing that that I get asked as as a Christian minister. Yes, I think uh, to a large extent. Although it's it's always been it's it's always been a complex. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's hard to say Christian ethics as a single phenomenon. Uh, probably in no era. I'm not a church historian, but probably in no era could you kind of, you know, bottom it out to a single phenomenon. Certainly from the time from the second or third century onwards, when there's the, the church starts to spread out and has different opinions about engagement with warfare and, and so on and so forth. Um, so even at the time that. Um, you know, even at the time when many were deeply engaged, deep, many Christians or people who were churchgoers at least were um, were deeply implicated in the slave trade. There were others like the Quakers who weren't and stood up against it. And my own tradition, the Baptists, I mean, we, we by no means got entirely uh, clean hands, but they were a lot cleaner than many in a sense that many early Baptists um, resisted the slave trade strongly. So is there a, is, is Christian ethics emerging? It's, it's always complex. I suppose that as as a Christian who holds um, a high view of, of the Bible, I would say that we have a kind of we have a kind of fixed mark. We're continually trying to interpret it, and I, I as I would look at certain periods in the church's life and say, "My goodness me, how do they get it so wrong?" But I also wonder what future generations are going to say about me and my and my generation and say, "My goodness me, how do you know she used to fly to conferences." <laughs> maybe that'll never happen again who knows but you know what are people what are future generations going to say about me so yes i think we're always ethics is always um theology being worked out at at um uh, where the rubber hits the road if you like and uh, and we're always therefore adapting to a changing world and if i may dr painter just coming back to my own experience as an american as two Johns that we oftentimes learn about in the middle of the 19th century, John C. Calhoun was probably the most articulate pro-slavery, um, not just pro-slavery senator, but somebody who used the Bible for justification, said, look, the Bible has slaves, 
obviously there are other cultures and other times that have had slavery, yet at the same time, John Brown, of course, Quaker, Quaker abolitionist, at the exact same time was using the Bible saying, if we can't show charity and love towards the most vulnerable, in this case, you know, human beings as chattel property, um, then we're doing the Bible wrong. And I guess my point is that we, again, always see these things as binary, but they're based on the same uh, holy text, and they are about as diametrically opposed as possible. Yeah. Let me give just a brief counterpoint around another philanthropist who died in 2011, Jimmy Savile. And the allegations against Jimmy Savile and pedophilia and uh, child sexual exploitation only came up about a year later. And statues in the interim had been put up to him, obviously around his gravesite uh, in Glasgow, in Huddersfield and other parts of the country. They were taken down within days. And I think that that is because clearly once there were strong enough allegations to where people said, we're not going to support that. What I find very interesting and coming back to Dr. Painter's initial point is that clearly this seems like it was the Colson statue at least was hung up in the count, the Bristol council for a while. And at the very least, it seems to me that when, you know, the Jimmy Savile uh, uh, removal of his statues shows that when there is a will, it can be done really quickly. I mentioned the the uh, sort of debate around the the reframing of the statue, um, or, or, sorry, or the reframing of the, the kind of plinth around the statue, and um, I read a little bit about this uh, recently because a you know who do you ask when you're going to write a legend? Because what you're doing when you're doing that is you're writing history, aren't you? And, and history is always is always um, partial in both senses of the word. So who do you ask? So they they actually asked a primary school. And they asked a selection of other people and they came up with some draft wording. Um, and at this point, kind of people kept piling back in saying we can't have this and we can't have that. So we had he was uh, he was described as a Tory MP and uh, certain people wanted that taken out. They, they wanted to kind of dis dissociate themselves and say, well, he wasn't very wasn't very Tory or wasn't very prominent in that area. Um, they wanted uh, his association with Merchant Ventures, which is a big organisation in Bristol. Um, they wanted him distanced from that. Um, there was a whole lot of stuff that, that and that, that was what led to the stalemate why the, the reason that this that no no new um, legend has been put up under his name so there's a whole lot of stuff um, about who gets to speak uh, who gets to frame history who gets to express um, what's going on but I'm still not entirely comfortable that we, we talk about modern life as messy and complicated and you know involving trade-offs but then we see history as simply just good guys and bad guys. And, you know, that seems to me one of the things that's been difficult and, and you know, is going to be an ongoing challenge. To come back to the issue of, of the statue, again, it was first to face 22 years ago. So this is not a new issue. But I think we'd all agree that the reason it became really prominent and important in June 2020 is off the back of the... Uh, you know, the, what looks like the police racist murder of George Floyd, and that that has prompted questions about what real multiculturalism looks like, what the things that ethnic and religious minorities face in places like the United States, but also in Britain. So to an extent, the slavery bit and, and the bit about philanthropy and statues kind of tacked on to something that is much more contemporary. And we could, of course, go back to the history of of American mistreatment, you know, we're going to see a big rally in Tulsa tomorrow, which 99 years ago was one of the worst post-Civil War massacres of African-Americans that left a real 
you know, a real trauma, not just for those who felt it, but for other people who were essentially trying to, to, to become property owners and middle-class people themselves. It was a KKK attack. So it feels to me like some of the slavery things that I'm guilty here as well, slavery and statues, are, are, they overlap with the issue. But the real issue is, of course, about racial inequality and, and, and the, the larger hill or privilege that people who come from these backgrounds have to face. And that seems to me, yes, it intersects with slavery, but is also a, something of a standalone issue itself that needs to me more than what side do you want about taking down a Churchill statue, then what are we actually going to do in practice to change these things? And again, I'll come back to this, I think probably the most astonishing case is somebody like Jan Smuts. You can find statues of him all over. He was Churchill's right-hand man during the Second World War, was responsible for drafting the United Nations uh, Declaration, which talked about all free peoples and talked about human rights, really coined a lot of those terms. And he was also, you know, heavily involved with maybe one of the most important persons involved in the construction of apartheid in post-war South Africa. Both of those things are true. I'm not sure that it allows us to make a simple statement about Jan Smuts, but both of those things are absolutely factually correct. And I suppose the question is, and again, Dr. Leiber as a historian will know that we're always rewriting history to an extent, but those, those kinds of things tell us more about ourselves than perhaps what th that person who lived and breathed and, and died in the 20th century um, might reveal. Because I think the, the bit about the, the, the sort of more nuanced understanding of the past, is that the thing that struck, strikes me with the, um, with, the statue, with the statues of people like Colston and, and, uh, and Rhodes and others is it sort, of, uh, it sort of perpetuates a myth that Britain's um, history sort of is, is, is built by great white imperialist men. Whereas I think Britain's past is as multicultural as its present. We're not used to speaking about the past in multiculturalism by, I mean, I suppose multicultural and multiracial, um, though obviously it's a bit of a problematic term. Um, but I suppose by that I mean like Britain has always been involved with people from else, outside of Britain. I mean, the, the, much of its wealth is built on the backs of people outside of Britain, obviously not by their own will. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of very aware, I mean, I'm very aware in debates like this that I am a sort of child of the empire. You know, my dad was from St. Kitts in the West Indies. Um, you know, Liebert is not a, the na a name that's sort of native to the, to the, to the West Indies. It's the name of a slaver um, at some point. Um, so the way that I sort of approach this is, is both as a historian, but also as a sort of child of empire. And um, yeah, that's what I, what I was trying to say is that, yeah, the past is, is multiracial and multicultural and black people have been involved in Britain's history, though, though maybe not necessarily in Britain geographically. Um, for as long as people like Colston were um, doing their thing. Yeah. You'll forgive me for, for coming back to what Dr. Lybird said there. I, I also have, I guess you could call it a confession on my mother's side, um, traces all the way back to something called in America, the Mayflower Society. That is the, the Quaker pilgrims who landed in 1620. And again, you juxtapose that and particularly that history that was told uh, you know, to, to my mother's side and to many people for 300 years, which was one of, you know, not conquest, but one of, of triumph. And uh, uh, I guess you'd, I guess you say finding the new world, compare that with what the, the New York times has done on the 1619 project, um, you know, juxtaposing with Jamestown and elsewhere. And it becomes a much more um, complicated uh, narrative. 
maybe the, the, the brass tacks question is, where does that leave me? I'm certainly aware that as a, you know, somebody who presents as white has been very privileged from that, um, you know, f from that trajectory, but I wasn't personally involved with uh, the things that my ancestors did one way or another. Um, it seems to me that one of the, the questions about privilege or one of the questions about what you do with these narratives is how can you actually do something to change the world for the better now? rather than I think as we all see a great deal of kind of shouting and screaming on social media and having that be a kind of substitution for activism. I wonder if that brings us round to something I was wanting to um, think about, which is the question of the value of symbol, I guess, the value of symbolic action. Um, and as, with with my own background um i tend to think of this through through the lens of, of the bible because that's how i often do think about things and and i wonder if if how does a how does a nation or a a group of people repent what does repentance mean repentance isn't something we speak about actually in 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 modern society really but it's something that people who who go to church or read the bible read about a lot what does it mean and i'm wondering if is symbol symbolism can be empty can't it um but on the other hand sometimes it can point to something deeper or it can trigger something deeper maybe so i kind of wonder if there if there can be a moment a tipping point uh, perhaps that's an influencer's pun but uh, a, a moment when um when repentance can be evoked and a society can choose to shift and as as, as Dr. Feldman said earlier, you know, we need to remember that slavery isn't a thing of the past. Slavery is, is an ongoing issue. And I suppose a, a similar but slightly different lens that I might apply, you know, there was a lot of people after that statue came down, there was a lot of people saying what a violent action and, and what a, a senseless destruction and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and I remember the story of, of Jesus walking into the temple and making a whip out of cord and, and, turning over the tables of the money changers and what he's doing there is he's confronting the power of vested interest he's confronting the status quo he's taking undertaking what might be described as a violent action not against people but certainly violent in, against things um and what he's doing actually doesn't achieve anything in itself um but it's richly symbolic in his denunciation of the system um, and actually the way he, he, he kind of brings the whole um, apparatus to stand still for half an hour. So there's a kind of deeply, I would say, prophetic moment there. And I wonder if, if that's a, a kind of slight paradigm for, can, can it be, can this moment of, of dethroning of statues like this be a, be a kind of a prophetic moment that, that leads a city to repentance or a nation to repentance? I think it can, a whole nation. Um, and let me give you another example of a, a slightly more positive outcome. Um, it's one of my favorite moments of post-war history. Um, Willy Brandt, then chancellor of the Federal um, Republic of Germany, went to Warsaw and was there at the statue of the uh, commemoration of Warsaw Uprising. This is 1970. And by all accounts, really overwhelmed with emotion himself and kneels at the statue. And really for a lot of people, I think that was the starting point for Germany to really start wrestling with its past about the Holocaust and about wartime genocide, imperialism, and what have you. And that, that was a pretty, you know, maybe like the Colson statue, something that falling, not thought out days and days in advance. But, and again, maybe here's another thing that's important uh, in the post-war world. The fact that these things were captured on film 
and 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 read by elites by people who are you know kind of news commentators or what have you is saying this somehow defines in this case you know germany in the 1970s that somehow the the toppling of the colson statue defines britain in the 2020s whether that's true or not i certainly agree with dr painter that symbolism goes a long way and can help us make sense of the world for good and ill I mean, the one thing i kept thinking of when um First, when Helen was talking about repentance, and then when Matthew mentioned um, West Germany, was uh, the work of Paul Gilroy, who's a cultural critic and historian, writes a lot about race and empire in modern Britain. And um, he, uh, in a book called After Empire, Melancholy or Convivial Culture, um, he talks about um, this idea of post-colonial melancholia. And, um, but he talks about it through the example of the uh, social and psychological work done in West Germany after the Second World War and the way that people were unable to come to, to, come to terms in a sort of healthy way with, um, with the, the, the sort of um, the past of the, of the Holocaust and of National Socialism. And he likens that, well, he likens that not in moral terms, but in terms of the way, of this, in terms of historical memory to the way that Britain um, does or does not remember its past. And um, in terms of sort of thinking about a, um, a cure, for this to sort of extend the medical metaphor that he used. Um, he talks about um, constructive shame. And I thought that was in, in, interesting in terms of what, what Helen was saying about repentance is that yes, we need to sort of uh, repent or, or have a, um, an honest reevaluation of, of the past, but it also needs to be constructive rather than just, I mean, the one thing that I've got, I find quite tiresome. Um, I have found very tiresome on social media of late is, is what I find the sort of performative self-flagellation of very well-meaning white people, but but it's I don't necessarily know how useful it is for them to be doing that or helpful to the causes that they're um, that they're sort of trying to support. Um, and I do I think the focus has to be on on sort of constructiveness um, going forward. I think. Can you imagine if you know a year from now we turn around and say, well, that was quite a moment, and we got rid of four statues, but actually fundamentally nothing has changed and i think that would be a huge disappointment and that comes back i think to liam's initial point about strategy right and to me if i was setting out on this to to support black lives matter and to support calls for racial justice the, one of the first things i'd think of and we can go back to the german example from 1970 again is you will get pushback from this and of course the not directly but we had the historians dispute break out in the mid 70s from people who were like hang on, that's too far. You know, nobody is claiming that all Germans were, you know, as of 1970, all Germans were complicit in this or the Wehrmacht was not so bad. These things changed over time. And it seems to me very, very similar, um, again, with some of our more recent examples. Um, we did see elements of the far right come out on Saturday um, and engage in racism, uh, engage in a kind of nationalistic defense. And I think strategically, if activists don't see that coming, um, that's, that is frankly naive because that was to me at the very least, absolutely obvious that that was going to come, come into play. And it seems to me that again, activists need to have a, a, a response to that. I mean, I suppose to, to piggyback off of, uh, off of, uh, Matthew's point about the far right, I think this, um, this is, I suppose highlights something that's very sort of worrying, but also sort of, I found a lot in my, um, thesis research is that the, um, the far right are really keen on empire. And I also think the 
political, some of the sort of essence, the political essence of a lot of things that are about colonialism and British imperialism, it's white supremacy, it's, it's violent racism, are things that the, um, the radical right, both in the past and now, finds incredibly inspirational. And I think really, rather than them being this sort of um, sideshow, this extreme sideshow, um, although obviously very dangerous, um, is that they represent, I think, one of the legacies of colonialism, another one that we sort of have to confront in some senses as well. I understand the desire to go after what I would regard with the Colson statue as low-hanging fruit. You know, there's been a generation of people trying to take it down. He's clearly not as either important or even as controversial a figure as Smuts or Churchill. It's all you know, pretty clear. But my, my fear would be that if, if, if activists who are really looking for structural change are seeing the low-hanging fruit as achievements rather than the, and, and it's not either or, but rather than the lived experience of people who are facing discrimination, who are facing perhaps you know, religious hostility, or any one of the numbers of a, a problem that society creates for itself because we don't live in a utopia. It's a question of, of trying to make life better or make it less worse for others. The Colson statue was a great symbol of doing that. But I'm afraid that if all we're going to have is symbols, important as they are, we might not get change. There was a, I'm sure we're all aware of the medieval phenomenon of carnival, of carnival, which was actually encouraged by the, the ruling class because in, in the moment of carnival, everything got, um, you know, tipped upside down. But actually what it allowed was the dissipation of kind of pent-up anger and, and frustration. And then it was all shut back down again when the festival was over. seems to me that there was something very carnivalesque about that statue coming down. But my concern is that it actually acts as a vent that um, then allows everything, as, as we've all said in different ways, I think, to just um, simmer back down and become business as normal. Well, I think that um, it's a good place to bring our discussion to a conclusion. Um, Matthew and I are very grateful to you, Liam, for joining us today. Um, thank you for a really interesting discussion. You've been listening to Guns and God, co-hosted by Helen Painter and Matthew Feldman. Our guest today was Liam Lyberg.